Thanks, Diana. Uh, welcome to church. I know there's a few uh, guests and people that I haven't uh, seen before, I've just met today. Really welcome uh, to our church, and I hope you got a good taste of um, yeah, what it's like Sunday by Sunday. Uh, but this is also a special month as we're trying to explore some topics that we really feel like could be relevant to um, a lot of people, particularly uh, in our culture and in our day. So, I'm talking about failure. So let me tell you about Joanne. By the time Joanne was in her early 30s, she would have felt that she had failed in almost every conceivable way. Seven years out of uni, she was a divorcee, a single mum of one child. She was unemployed, she was on the dole. Her hopes and her dreams lay scattered all around her. But Joanne had an idea for a book, in fact, a series of books. And so she holed up in a coffee shop in Scotland uh, on an old typewriter that she had borrowed. She wrote and she wrote and she wrote. But that first manuscript of her first book, well, no publisher wanted it. In fact, 12 publishers rejected it before finally a small, tiny publisher. Um, and it was only because his own eight-year-old daughter requested that uh, he read it. Finally, this small publisher decided to take a chance on Joe. Well, the rest, you probably already can guess who it is. The rest is history, because that novel was Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And that divorced single mum on the doll is J.K. Rowling. And it's really hard to get a better example, right, of not being defined by failure. Like, that's a classic example. Failed in so many ways, and yet was able to rise up and succeed. Well, except, of course, in recent years, that same J.K. Rowling, once so adored by the media and fans, has been all but cancelled. Why? Well, if you haven't kept up with the news, in a series of tweets and articles, and depending on your point of view, and I'm not here to go into the argument here, but depending on your point of view, either... J.K. Rowling was rightly defending the rights of women to be women or is a transphobic and bigoted person. Uh, in fact, she got so cancelled that someone called her, J.K. Rowling, she who must not be named. Uh, she was cancelled from exhibitions. She was removed from a museum celebrating Harry Potter, but she was removed while they still had Harry Potter. Even stars of the movie distanced themselves from her. More than that, online especially, she was threatened verbally, she was threatened physically, she was abused, it was absolutely brutal. And what all of this shows, of course, is that in our culture, in modern Australia, some failures are okay, aren't they? But other failures are unforgivable. See, for the woman whose personal and professional failures didn't define her, it made her more of a hero, in fact. Well, that same woman, J.K. Rowling, is now defined by the unforgivable sin of our culture, which is, of course, transphobia, and she is now cancelled. See, a lot of people say, well, we're a very tolerant society. That's not the case, is it? For our supposed tolerance of failures, only some failures don't define us. Other failures absolutely do. It's almost a complete contradiction, and you probably get what I mean. Now, before, though, before those of you who are sympathetic to J.K. Rowling and her stance on trans issues go point the finger and say, oh yeah, that's what's all wrong with the left and the world and all that kind of stuff, the truth is there's a contradiction in all of our tribes, no matter what tribe you're from, no matter what political leaning, no matter what community. This is everywhere. 
that, I'll just give you an example. I'm going to give you a list of sins, okay? Sins as broadly defined in our culture. Uh, and you just, in your head, work out which are the forgivable ones in modern Australia and which are the unforgivable ones. And uh, by the way, it'll depend on which culture you belong to. So for example, revenge killing. Uh, what about failing to provide for your family? What about abandoning or killing unwanted babies? Or racism? Or sex before marriage? Or divorce? Or insulting someone's honor? You see, depending on which culture you are from or you belong to or are thinking of, some are forgivable, others are stains that you will never remove. Am I correct? So I'll give you an example. Just from that list, in Asian culture, I'm ashamed to say, racism gets a bit of a free pass. In Australia now, no way. Okay? Racism is very bad. Um, in Western culture, sex before marriage is okay. In other cultures, it's unforgivably shameful. Do you see? And what about churches? If you've grown up in church, if you know churches, hey, I'm the first to admit, even though we want to say all failures are tolerated, well, if you've grown up in church culture, you know that some failures are tolerated. Others are not so much, hey? So this idea of failures don't define me, well, it's a nice ideal, but in reality, is it anywhere to be found? Well, that's when Jesus comes, and I want to argue, changes everything again. You see, Jesus, in this chapter that Diana read for us, he faced with an unforgivable sin in his culture. And what he offered this woman in his culture, the unforgivable shows us what He can offer you and me. And it is so much bigger and so much better than anything you will ever experience from anyone else. So, we're going to have a look at Jesus and the unforgivable. Now, I know that you Bible nerds are thinking, hang on, my footnote in my Bible says this episode wasn't in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts of the Bible. Uh, and that's true. It probably was not part of John's original biography. But it was inserted in enough later manuscripts that the truth is it, we're really not certain for sure. It may not have been in the original, but at least a bunch of scholars think it probably most likely did happen, right? John may not have wrote it, but it most likely did happen, this encounter, this episode. And actually, when you read it, it's very consistent with the kind of Jesus we would meet, not necessarily from John, but from the rest of the Bible. So even if it's not John's words, I want to suggest this is the real Jesus. And there was a real woman. And it's definitely enough for us to encounter him through this episode, whoever wrote it. And I want to highlight three things, right? The sinner, the dust, and the verdict. So I hope you're interested because we're going to walk through this passage again. Keep your Bibles open or you can just follow with me on the overhead. So let's, uh, let's have a go uh, from the beginning. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? Now I want you to actually try to imagine and picture this scene with me. Because Jesus is there, okay? And as he's been doing in Jerusalem, he's teaching at the temple courts. Now, he must have been in the outer courts because this is the only part of the temple where women are allowed. And as he was teaching there in the outer courts, this woman is dragged before him. 
Now, you can imagine it, can't you? Like respectable Pharisees, men with flowing beards and suits, dragging a scantily clad Jewish woman, dumping her in the middle right before Jesus. Now, we're told that she was caught in the act of adultery. Now, that that should raise some questions, shouldn't it? I mean, I assume she wasn't doing it in the open air in broad daylight. So how did they know that she was committing adultery? Were they stalking her? Were they spying on her? And besides all this, why didn't they bring the man? You see, in the Jewish Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, the Jewish law, he is just as guilty. He should be stoned to death as well. Why target the woman? And even if the man ran away, why didn't they care about catching him? Because it was all a setup, and we know that. These people who dragged this woman in front of Jesus, they didn't care about justice. In fact, it was quite unjust in some ways, definitely sexist. But they just wanted to trap Jesus. They wanted to know what Jesus would do. And so they drag this woman, they dump her before him, dump her there, barely clothed, perhaps naked. And out of all the places in the temple where every religious tut-tut-tut can be heard. Here, Jesus, what are you going to do with her? She should be stoned to death, caught in the act of adultery. She is guilty as hell. Jesus, what do you say we should do with her? Now, before we move on, what does this show us? Well, what I was mentioning before, right? That in their culture, like ours, what's unforgivable is selective. And interesting, it's kind of opposite to ours. You see, in their culture, adultery was unforgivable. In our culture, adultery is forgivable. In their culture, though, sexism, injustice was forgivable, right? They were being terribly unjust. In our culture, those are unforgivable. So what does Jesus do? Well, as usual, Jesus kind of cuts through culture. He's countercultural. But I want you to notice this next bit. Verse 6, they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But did you notice this? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What a curious thing for Jesus to be doing. Right at this moment, bending down, writing on the ground in the dust. I wonder what he was writing. I'm interested in what you're going to come up with. So why don't you just, you know what, you've been sitting for a while. Why don't you just stand up and just, if you want to, because you you might want to get some oxygen in your legs or whatever, because you've been sitting for a while. Why don't you stand up, just chat to someone next to you and say, what was Jesus doing? Why was he writing on the ground? What might he have been writing? Go on, let's just do that. If you want to stand up, you can stand up just to get a stretch. Yeah. Find someone who's on their own if, you, if you're sitting by yourself and just ask them the question, what do you think Jesus was doing writing on the ground? What was he writing?
Okay, we're gonna we're gonna have a bit of fun here. So feel free to sit down or keep standing if you want. Uh, any, I'm gonna roaming mic here. Any interesting suggestions? You can dob someone else in. Did someone come up with an interesting theory as to what Jesus was doing, why was he doing, and what was he maybe writing? Any ideas? Any interesting suggestions? The Ten Commandments. Oh, Pin says maybe he's writing the Ten Commandments. That would be interesting. Yeah, Max. Just doodling. Just doodling. It's possible as well. Yeah. Maybe drawing two ways to live. Anyway, um, <laughs> any, any other ideas? It's fascinating, isn't it? Any other ideas? Okay, Corinne. Okay, he was writing uh, the law about what to do with someone in adultery, okay? The procedure. Um, truth is, we don't really know. <laughs> There's centuries of speculation by scholars, so yours is as good as their guess. But one theory that I kind of like is this. Um, if you look up Jeremiah 17:13 on the screen, it says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. It's interesting. I mean, I don't know, but if it is in the background, then, then maybe there's a deliberate kind of twist to this passage. Because this passage is talking about those who forsake God, their names will be written on the ground. So maybe the Pharisees expected that her name would be written in the dust because she's the unforgivable sinner. She's the one who's forsaken the Lord. But whatever Jesus wrote, I can guarantee it probably wasn't her name. Or maybe he wrote her name and then crossed it out. Or maybe he wrote the names of everyone else that was there because he would ask the question in a moment, any of you who, are with, who is without sin, right? And, and maybe he's making the point that everyone's name should be written in the dust. No exceptions. Everyone's the same. But they're just theories. Truth is, we don't know. Um, we don't know. We don't know what he wrote. But maybe what he wrote isn't that important because I want you again to picture the scene with me. Maybe it's the act of what he was doing that's important. So for a moment, imagine that scene again, okay? And, it's, and in the scene, you remember, is supercharged with all of this tension and all of this aggression. There's so much activity. There's so much energy. Remember, the Pharisees have stormed in. They, they drag her. They dump her. They accuse her. They shout. They test. They act. And the woman, though, she's down. She's low. She's sitting in the dust. She's so ashamed. She's naked. She's crying. She's as low as possible. She's passive. And Jesus, what is he doing? At this most charged, tense moment, what's he doing? He, well, he's quiet. He's passive. He stoops. He bends. He goes to the dust. He goes to her level. She's looking down. He's looking down. He just quietly, gently, calmly does the unexpected, writing on the ground. Accusations are flying, tempers are soaring. Jesus is just stoops. He waits. He writes. He identifies not with the Pharisees, not with the accusers. No, he's identifying with the accused. That poor woman sitting on the ground in the dust, he is there with her. Maybe that's the significance. Which is why his question to them, the kind of punchline of this episode, is so appropriate, so masterful. What I wouldn't give to have been there at that time to look at their faces, right? Let's have a look at the passage again. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you 
who was without sin, be the first to throw a stone at her. Then again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, in the Bible's worldview, all sin is ultimately sin against God. Adultery was a serious sin. In the Old Testament law, it meant a death sentence. And in adultery, yes, your sin is against your spouse if you're married or someone else who is married. But remember um, King David, the famous king, when he committed adultery, in fact, he committed murder and adultery. He said in Psalm 51 in his confession, he said, Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned. Because David understood that in the Bible's worldview, all sin is ultimately against God because we live in God's world, says the Bible. We were created by God to flourish and thrive and love with certain boundaries that are boundaries there for our good. These boundaries protect marriages. These boundaries protect justice. And they all matter to God equally, by the way. And deliberately breaking these boundaries are offenses against God primarily and others secondarily. See, God cares about all sins adultery and injustice, racism and killing babies, insults and sex before marriage. But here, notice the good news, the radical counter every culture good news. Jesus, the one who is God, and therefore he's the one sinned against in every act of sin, Jesus, God says, I don't condemn you. He pronounces the verdict, not guilty. He says to the unforgivable, you're forgiven. And if it comes from him, then no one and nothing can take that away. This is in the Bible. Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who didn't spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I wonder when Paul wrote Romans 8 whether he had in mind this episode of the woman in Jesus' words. And it's wonderful, isn't it? But I don't want you to miss the key in this passage. In fact, it's highlighted for you. It all hinges on what God did through his son. God gave him up for us. Jesus died and rose again. See, the key, like back in John chapter 8, is Jesus. Because very soon the same Pharisees will put their verdict on Jesus and the greatest injustice in all human history will happen. Jesus will be condemned and he will be crucified. But of course it was all in God's plan. Jesus chose to go. Romans 8, God willingly gave up his son. Now why would he do that? 
or because he would go and die in the place of sinners. You get that? The one sinned against God would willingly, lovingly walk to the cross, identify with sinners, ultimate going down to the dust, if you like, and pay our penalty, bear our shame, and die in our place. Jesus could acquit that woman that day because he would have his hands and feet nailed to a cross for, for her one day, for her sin of adultery. See, sin matters. Matters enough that Jesus had to die. But also, you matter. You matter. Matter enough that Jesus would die for you. And so the result is this. No sin is unforgivable to the Jesus who died for you. No sin is unforgivable. No matter what culture you're from, no matter what culture your culture or your tribe thinks is unforgivable, no sin, no exceptions is unforgivable because Jesus died for you. So what do you define by? You see, I think the problem and the reason every culture, including church culture, has forgivable and unforgivable sins is we actually let failure and success define us, okay? Isn't that what we do? See, every culture has their list of failures and some will be forgivable failures, others will be unforgivable failures. And they'll also have, every culture will have their list of successes. Some are such good successes that they can overcome even terrible failures, yeah? And they're different culture by culture. But the problem, I think, is this. The problem is actually to be defined by failure and success in the first place. Because if you're ever defined individually or as a culture by failure and success, it's always going to be indexed on your achievement, right? Your identity is something that you achieve, that you work for. And that is okay if your successes outweigh your failures. But if your failures outweigh your successes or you commit the unforgivable failures in your culture... That's terrible. That's bad. You will never recover from that. But that's a terrible burden, isn't it? It's a terrible burden. And it's such a problem because, look, here's the thing. As long as our identity is something that we achieve, I'm always going to look sideways and downwards, aren't I? I'm always going to compare myself to you. And you're going to compare yourself to me and the person next to you. As long as your identity is achieved, we're always going to look sideways and downwards at those who have not got it together as much as I. See, an identity that is achieved will always compare and always judge. It's nice when you can be the one judging others. It's not so nice when you're the one getting judged. And that's the problem. Every culture, every tribe, your identity is something you achieve And so there's always going to be forgivable and unforgivable failures because we're always looking at each other. Well, today Jesus offers a different way. You don't have to be identified by your failures nor by your successes. See, he gives you an identity, an identity that's not achieved, an identity that is received. You get the difference? An identity you don't have to achieve, an identity that you get received As a gift, it's by grace that no matter who you are, that no matter what you've done, whether they're failures or successes, doesn't matter. You can be forgiven. You can be accepted. You can be loved, not on the basis of your failures or your successes. You can have an identity apart from merit, apart 
from achievement. It's all by grace. It's a gift so free for us because it was so costly for God. And that changes everything. By the time Dave was 28, he was famous for all the wrong reasons. His marriage had failed. He had two kids he dumped on his wife. He was a drinker. He was a liar. He was a womanizer. He was violent. And he loved getting in fights. Now, what was interesting is that to say he had a Christian or a church background is a bit of an understatement, okay? He would, what we, he'd be from what we would call Anglican church royalty, if there was such a thing. He was born into the family of the then principal of Moore College. His dad then became the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney. And yet he was, Dave was, in his words, his own words, he was so vile, he was so violent, he was so terrible... That he, his words, he said, I outdid every non-Christian in how horrible I was. Even his non-Christian friends thought he went too far. And then finally though, one morning, hungover, Dave met Jesus. The Jesus he knew all his life and yet ran away from. This is what he said. He said, I remember going and looking in the mirror and saying, what are you doing? Even though I'd heard the gospel a hundred, a million times before, I realized that no matter what I had done, no matter how far I had walked, no matter how much I rejected God, the cross of Jesus was enough for me. He'd done it for me. And the love of God shining through Jesus was more powerful than anything I had done. I hope you get the privilege of meeting Dave one day. He is the real deal. His life is so different now. His life is an example of what meeting Jesus brings. So I wonder today, do you know Jesus like Dave? Like the woman in John chapter 8. Doesn't matter who you are, you've been in church all your life like Dave, or this is the first time you've walked into church. No matter who you are, you can. You can know Jesus like that. You can come to him. You can today be defined not by your failures nor by your successes, but by simply and wonderfully being his. You can be forgiven, you can be loved for all eternity. So what can you do? Well, one of the things you can do is come along to Alpha. As I said the last couple of weeks, my wife and I, we're going to be hosting Alpha. It's going to be dinner. It's going to be really relaxed, really casual. Over a number of weeks, we're going to explore some of these things. And if you're unsure, you can't commit to six weeks, don't worry. Just come to the first week and decide. Right? Free feed on us. Meet some people. If you don't like it after one week, don't come back. It's fine. Just come to the first week on March the 10th. That's a really good way of meeting Jesus in the pages of the Bible. And it's very discussion-based, very low-key, very unthreatening. Lots of people exactly where you are, just wanting to find out more. But it may be that today you're ready to meet Jesus. And if you are, I'd I'd like to pray. And all you have to do is just right, make it true for you. So I'll pray some words, and if you feel like this is something that you can do, just in your head, maybe pray it with me. God will hear you. You don't have to pray it out loud. 
But if you're ready today, because God is tugging at your heart to, to have what Dave has, what this woman had in John 8, and then don't wait. Talk to him today. All right, so if I can just get everyone to kind of look down quietly, that way no one's looking around. And if you want to pray with me, why don't you do that? Dear Jesus, I want to be forgiven like this woman in John chapter 8. I want what Dave experienced. I want you to come into my life and make everything different. So please come into my life. Please forgive me. Please change me. Amen. Now, if you prayed that and you responded in that way uh, and it was a significant prayer for you, maybe you've prayed something like that before, but really today is, you know, something really hit you. Um, yeah, that's really wonderful because Jesus will come into your life. This is not a prayer that he will not, this is a prayer he loves to answer, okay? Um, and it'd be great if you um, just quietly let me know or let the friend who brought you know, um, that this happened, uh, just, just so we can be happy with you and, and help you along the way. Um, and, and regardless of whether you pray that or not, Alpha, there's three more weeks until we start. Yeah, three more weeks until we start. Um, two more weeks until we start. Two more weeks until we start. Oh, goodness. Um, two more weeks until we start. And we, you know, just, just sign on. Come to the first week on March the 10th. See how you go. Um, you know, that'd be a really great, great, great next step for you. All right, we're going um, we're gonna, to we're gonna sing. So I'm going to... Pass it back to the band.